Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. If you want to know the answer to a question, all you have to do is ask Alexa, Siri, or Google. If your question happens to be, what is the capital of Latvia or something else, pretty straightforward. Siri, Alexa, and Google will do just fine. But if you're looking for information that's more complex, or if you have to be absolutely certain that what you're finding out is true, there's another way of conducting research. There's a vast repository of fact-check knowledge at your local library. Just how vast the repository actually is, though, depends on where you live. If you live in a big city, you have access to a big library. If you live in a small town or suburb, your library is smaller. But your access to reliable and specialized information doesn't have to be limited by where you live, thanks to your local librarian. Now, librarians everywhere receive the same training. As our quest for information changes, librarian skills have to change too. And they have to change more quickly now than they did before Siri and Alexa showed up. Since 2018, librarians have been adopting a software-driven training program called SkillType. SkillType's librarian customers are spread across the United States and around the world, including UK, Israel, Singapore, and Australia. The founder and CEO of SkillType is Baton Rouge-based New Orleanian Tony Zanders. Tony, welcome out to lunch. Thanks so much for having me. If you're a company or an organization rather than an individual and you're looking for information about individuals, you conduct market research. Now, the most common form of market research is finding out what people like or don't like by simply asking them. You're probably familiar with that phone call. The person on the other end says that they're conducting a survey and ask if you have a few minutes to answer some questions. This person is typically working for a research firm that a company or organization pays to design and administer a survey. The research firm maximizes its profit by completing the greatest number of surveys in the shortest possible time with the least number of employees. Because what they're doing is specialized, meaning their client doesn't understand it, there's no oversight. And so the door is open for unscrupulous corner cutters to use technology like automated phone bots to make it look like a batch of surveys were executed honestly when in fact they weren't. If you're the client, how do you know whether the company you've hired to conduct your research is giving you reliable data or whether they're defrauding you with bogus information. Well, the way you can tell is to make sure the company you hire to conduct that research is using a piece of software called Research Defender. Research Defender uses AI and machine learning to keep up and defeat the dirty tricks that unscrupulous survey takers employ. The CEO of Research Defender is Vignesh Krishnan. Vignesh, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me, Professor. Let me just uh, 
me just start with this. First, I'll start with Tony here. Uh, skill type is specialized software that has a number of different applications for the library industry. But let's start with its function of training librarians. As I understand it, your software doesn't train librarians with basic library skills. It's much more advanced than that. So can you tell us what it is that skill type teaches librarians? Sure. And so this profession that we all probably are familiar with from the time we've become children, reading books at our local library, or even studying at university to do research in our university library, has been around for, for literally centuries. And before 1980s, um, most of that experience was around the print book or the monograph. Dewey Decimal Catalog, I have an information need, I walk in, a person walks me over to the right place in the stacks in order to find that book so I could start doing my research. Well, ever since the card catalog has been moved online in the 80s and research has started to be performed online and written and produced online in an electronic format at the beginning, there's so many different workflows underneath to make that happen and to start to catalog and collect that information, describe it according to each of the different topics and disciplines and preserve access to it over time. So that's something that may have been produced in 2000 still will have the same integrity and accessibility that it did when it was actually produced. There's about 500 different skills that are needed to run the modern library. So this isn't your mother's library? No, it's a, it's a, a quite a new, uh, wonderful place. Uh, the physical building you're walking into might be the same architecture or it might be a modernized LEEDS certified structure. But now when you walk in, you're immediately connected to the Wi-Fi network you're using your cell phone or your iPad or laptop uh, to get access to a digital collection. And everything is evolving and adapting to the digital shift we're in. The last piece to the puzzle is the workforce and making sure, as you mentioned during the intro, they can get access to the skills they need um, at this rapid pace as technology continues evolving. Vignesh. Uh, Fraud is a weird human trait. You'd think if a person has enough advanced knowledge of statistics to design, implement, and interpret surveys, they already have valuable enough skills to earn a good living. I assume it's greed that pushes pollsters to commit fraud. And I guess there are enough greedy pollsters out there to make your product, Research Defender, a necessary part of the market research landscape. But on the subject of marketing, how do you market this product? A legitimate market research company isn't going to need it, and a crooked one isn't going to use it. So how do you get your clients to adopt it? Sure. Um, so with regards to the adoption, I think ultimately we all know that there is fraud in every aspect of life, unfortunately. You know, there's cyber fraud in the, in the currency space. Um, there is retail fraud. There is ad tech fraud. There is fraud against banking. We all know that sometimes we see an extra charge that you know the bank usually just removes. 
um, or sometimes you get a text saying, hey, this transaction happened 2,000 miles away from where you are. Like, is this, is this really you? Um, so unfortunately, it is a big problem. Um, and as such, everybody knows that this problem is out there. Um, I would say in some cases up to 20 to 30% of the surveys are compromised with, with bad actors, uh, as we like to call them. Um, so, and, and just one little clarification in what you said earlier, usually all market research firms are legitimate companies that are founded with the goal of giving good research. However, when they source respondents, that's where it starts to get a little bit eerie, right? So our technology can hopefully filter out some of that, um, you know, those bad actors coming in, essentially. Uh, so as such, it is a common problem. It's a well-known problem. And yes, you are right that some people try to avoid us and, and you know, they go around us. Usually these are the form of click farms or bot farms or what, what you wish. But generally speaking, we know that those are not good actors and we, of course, don't want to do business with them, right? Like we're, we're here trying to make sure that when they do come in, we, we fight against them. And you fight with algorithms? Is that your weapon? Yeah, yes, mostly. So uh, when you think about research, there are, you can think about it as a matrix. You know, we all like the two by two matrix. Um, so you have um, the two types of research, qualitative research and quantitative research. So quantitative research is numbers, statistics, you're looking at on a scale of one to five, how much do you like something? You know, we've all seen those, right? Or after a flight. Um, and then qualitative research is more focus group. So they're going to get you in and ask you how you feel about a product, um, what you like about the differences. It's more verbose for the lack of a better description. So you have qualitative, quantitative, and then you have online and offline. So you can do quantitative research offline as well as online, and you can do qualitative research online and offline. And our space, or at least the target that we have, is primarily online. And within that, it's more targeted towards quantitative research than qualitative. Um, so that's kind of the area that, that we target. And Tony, of all the things that are impressive about what you've done, I really like the idea that you were selling this system before you had actually developed it. Yeah, it's just a testament to how deep of a problem it is. Um, when we first set out, um, we didn't set out with a solution in mind. Um, I had spent the past 10 years prior to that um, working with libraries who are making this digital shift and in about 30 different countries. And um, I think the the problem that became most intriguing to me was one that no one was working on before. And so all the companies that currently sell services to libraries develop services for the collections to be managed, like the books and eBooks and databases, or they sell services for IT or um, data management. But no one was sort of trying to understand what's the largest problem libraries deal with, which is our workforce and how can we ensure that the people we employ have the expertise needed? How can we recruit the right people? Um, how can we make sure we recruit a diverse organization that reflects the student population or the citizens we serve? And this host of questions related to talent management just became very intriguing for me um, and so we started off with this problem in mind and just started to ask libraries around the world, is this a problem you're facing? Um, how are you solving it today? How severe is this challenge? Do you have any strategy to 
uh, arrive at the, the right solution? And the answer was basically telling us that, no, we need uh, a partner. We need an expert um, to help us in this area. And that's how we initially earned our first customers was sort of building this community that we would share our research and development with. Each month, we brought them together in what we called a, a town hall. Um, and this took place on Zoom. And we've done them every month for over two years. And it's become this global community of libraries who are reviewing our progress and the software, giving us feedback as we go along. And then we show them a new version uh, to try to get closer to what Skilltype has become today. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Tony Zanders from Skilltype. It's a specialized software that's taking libraries into the 21st century. And Vignesh Krishnan from Market Research Fraud Busters Research Defender. Now, Vignesh, uh, you would, uh, at one point, you were a Lucid employee. Is New Orleans, oh, I don't know, an ecosystem for uh, the survey industry? Is that what's going on? I mean, that would be so cool. That's the way. Um, you know, it'd be like the way Nashville became the healthcare uh, yeah. center and such. Do you see that happening? Yes, I, I actually do see that happening. And I can give you a very specific or set of examples as well. Uh, and the fact of the matter is this industry is pretty wide um, and you have multiple different aspects that we need to target when we work in this industry, right? So you have the data collection companies, you have the companies that fight fraud, you have the companies that primarily exist on the supply chain. Um, you have companies that do more research on the research side of things. Um, and the best way I can explain it, and I think I shared this a few weeks ago at, at one of the NOE events, and think about it in the way that it's not just that you have Coca-Cola and you have Pepsi, who are the competitors, but you actually have the supply chain that supports them. So you have the companies that manufacture the cans. You have the companies that are you know, bringing the sugar, for example, into the product, I presume. Um, you have the companies that distribute it, right? So the cool thing is, you know, I can name five or six companies. So we have ourselves, we have Lucid, of course, Pure Spectrum. Uh, there's a company called Grow Progress, MDRG. Uh, we have another company called RepData here locally. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few um, as well. We have other employees who work for other companies like Feedback Loop and, and uh, Sidex. So all of these companies do different things within the ecosystem, which I think is really cool. It's not just they're all competing with each other, right? Which I think is kind of boring, right? If you do, because then you kind of can't work with each other. Maybe you can work with each other a little bit. Um, so I think that's really cool. So yes, uh, Professor, yeah, uh, absolutely. We have come to a point where a lot of people who used to work at Lucid before or people who just migrated and some of these companies existed before Lucid. So for example, like MDRG, if I'm not wrong, existed even before Lucid. Um, and as such, we have a good ecosystem here, and, and it's, it's pretty connected and supportive. Wow. They, what about uh, with with Lucid and such? You had um, you must have seen things that uh, that were difficult for Lucid, or and that's what you kind of sought out to fix. Yes. Um, every and and it, this goes back to uh, something like Tony was saying earlier, which is that ultimately you have a most. Um, jobs these days are getting pretty complex and one person cannot do an umbrella of many things right um so tony's job is to support you know uh the the items that he was talking about uh, earlier in terms of the library ecosystem and so on and so forth and similarly within the the research ecosystem you have a lot of people doing a lot of different things and 
focusing on fraud was something that I think very few companies were doing at the time. Um, and we, you know, we obviously went out and did it. So yes, I was working at Lucid for about eight years. And over time, it just felt like the quality of the product, and I don't mean Lucid's product, I mean the market research ecosystem entirely, um, was starting to suffer because of fraud. And our goal was to come out independently and fight against it because it's you know, typically more efficient. Uh, it's typically a product that you can sell to multiple different um, companies. So for example, like taking Tony's example again, in theory, one very large library could hire you know, his company to just do it solely for them, but that would be a little bit more boring than you know, offering it worldwide, right? Like, like he's, he's trying to do. So some of the concepts definitely uh, apply here as well. Um, so yes, uh, I saw the problem, uh, hope to come and solve it, um, and decided to do it separately because it was probably more efficient to do it that way. And Tony, uh, one thing came up as, as, uh, in the research is that you obviously you're a New Orleanian in Baton Rouge, that's, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. But the other part was you have really come out a number of times and said that you thought that New Orleans and Baton Rouge should basically get along and try to be uh, more of a more of an economic uh, dynamo. And uh, for instance, the way Tampa St. Pete is or Minneapolis St. Paul, uh, do you think, how can that be done? You know, you do know the rest of the state hates New Orleans, right? All the, so it's, uh, I mean, yeah, they yeah, love, I, love hate. Yeah, and I, I don't think that the feelings are mutually exclusive. I think that, um, <laughs> you know, growing up in New Orleans, uh, I can count on, the, you know, the number of uh, times on one hand how many times we ventured out past our metro area. And uh, this is a multi-generational uh, colloquialism that we um, can quickly discern in conversation where someone's from. Uh, you know, I could just ask what high school you went to and depending on how long you hesitate to answer that question, I can in microseconds sort of put you into a non-New Orleanian category. And so, you know, the, the fact is that um, we're losing talent today um, from, from all of our major universities. Um, Tulane suffers from the same challenges from keeping graduates locally that LSU does. And companies are going to major markets. Uh, markets that have a broad diversity of types of lifestyles, a broad diversity of types of people. Um, not everyone that wants to have the, the, the walkability and the music and culture of New Orleans um, uh, is going to want to work at a company uh, that's based in New Orleans. They may want to live there, but they might want a bit more acreage or land. Maybe perhaps they want uh, more elbow room and uh, a different type of lifestyle and vice versa. And so um, major markets have figured this out and we're losing our top talent to those markets, namely Atlanta, uh, Austin, Dallas. Um, however, I believe that if a Tulane grad, as an example, isn't able to find the right opportunity after graduation in New Orleans, rather than throwing our hands up and saying, uh, you know, well, as long as our university placed them in a job uh, somewhere, we're satisfied. It's like, well, let's give a, a, a one to two month embargo on um, Southeast Louisiana businesses. Let's, let's perhaps refer them to some Baton Rouge based companies. 
um, before we give them up to another state. Um, and the same for LSU, right? If, if LSU grads were, are not able to find that Baton Rouge-based opportunity, um, let's refer them over to our, our friends at Tulane or Loyola in New Orleans, a lot of tech companies there. And I've been feeling this way for some time. I decided to move our company to Baton Rouge to prove that you can be very active in the New Orleans ecosystem. Uh, Eggs, Vignesh knows and others, I'm there enough to, for people to think I still live there. Yeah, uh, I actually thought you lived here, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, living in the Bay Area or New York or other places, you know, an hour, an hour drive is, is, is just par, par, you know, for the course. And so um, that's, that's sort of my view. And I think we do have room to grow and explore in this area. You know, Vignesh, I was going to ask you about the fact that you've got you've got algorithms and you've been able to you know find the fraudsters, but it's got to be constantly evolving. I mean, the people that are committing fraud um, must keep changing it, and so you have to change what you're doing. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually right. And again, it goes back to some of what Tony was saying. Uh, you know, I think five ten minutes ago, which is ultimately. In, in a way, you're talking about iterations, right? So uh, you have to take the feedback in, you have to look at what people are doing. Like I always tell the clients like, look, nobody can, will 100% solve fraud. You see that in all aspects of life. You know, I think there's a joke, uh, which is why did the robber rob the bank? Because that's where all the money is, right? So if there is value, you will always, people will always try and get to that value. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, you see this in every single industry in the world. And the question is whether you can limit it. That's the real key, right? Make sure that you're taking off the obvious aspects. Um, in our industry, the payouts are not that high. Um, they could range in the you know single digit dollars to maybe dozens of dollars, so maybe 20, 30, 40. So it, it adds up, obviously. If you have somebody who comes and steals thousands of those, then that's $3,000, which which uh, obviously starts to, or, or in fact, even $30,000 actually. Uh, so, so it, it, it adds up. So our goal is to limit it. I think that's, that's what I think the target should be. If it was at 15 or 20, we want to get it to like eight or seven or six, right? And then if it starts at eight or seven or six, we want to get it to three, right? And ultimately we want to get it to a very flat line. And the other piece is many of our clients also target us to keep the fraud consistent because they have to report that either because they're a public company or because of course, you know, money is involved here. Um, so they don't mind how much fraud there is as long as it's consistent because in some cases they see fraud like at 12% and then 4% and then 8% and it makes it really hard for them to budget, right? Because, you know, in theory, the delta there is 8, 8%, which, which is if you go and report to your board or internally that it's, you know, our revenue is $10 million and then you have to throw out $1 million because of fraud, that's a problem. Um, so... It just depends on what the goals are, but I always tell clients, and you know, shared here as well. Like, I don't think we should ever try to completely eliminate fraud because, and by the way, there's a flip side to the coin because if you try to get down to zero, your false positive starts to go up because now you're like, you know, calling in innocent people who, you know, were legitimately trying to take a survey. They just happened to have three phones, and it looked like they were a fraudster, but they weren't. Um, and so, so you have to balance that, right? So that's, I think, the best way to do it. But yes, uh, Professor, like, uh, ultimately, um, there is a, there's a iteration that keeps happening and happening. 
I'd like to actually get back to an earlier thread from the conversation on the industries and that our region's known for. Um, you, you know, mentioned Vignesh and I are kind of working on some research uh, software companies. Um, and I think it's important to note um, the diversity this is adding to the economy. Um, it's going to help with the brain drain we discussed, I believe, when we start to have options for graduates that map to the different disciplines they're studying. Um, and so, you know, we, we're known for sports and entertainment. We, we can do that like no one's business. Uh, tourism comes in from all around the world. Uh, we are a culinary arts hub. We, we, we train chefs on our cuisine from around the world. Uh, petrochemical oil and gas is a bedrock of our industry, obviously. Uh, but I think with the recent exits we have had on the software companies like Lucid and others last year, I think we're beginning a new chapter. Um, and I'm excited about not just Vignesh's work and, and, and my work, but um, what this means for future software entrepreneurs as well. Yes, uh, I agree. And actually, uh, taking up on that, that point, um, if you look at the, the set of, you know, companies coming through out of the Tulane ecosystem or even the New Orleans Entrepreneur Week, they're heavily tech focused, right? They're heavily information technology focused, which I think is, is great. Uh, so Tony, that actually does go to your point where it's adding, you know, a much more diversification, which is always a good thing uh, in terms of the economy and where the focus is. So there's uh, companies that are targeting, you know, software companies that are talking, uh, targeting rental problems. Um, in the industry, there's software companies that are addressing audio, the ways to get musicians to collaborate with each other better. Um, you know, we're focusing on research, like you said. Um, so literally, the the uh, the the limit is 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 you know is is big, right? It's very big. Like I, I quite frankly cannot come up with all the different ideas that have come through because there have been so many. Uh, so yeah, I think that's been really great to see. Yeah, I was just, you know, just thinking, you know, I started my career in California and, um, you know, 2006, seven and eight, you know, that was sort of Silicon Valley's height. You know, LinkedIn was founded, Facebook was founded, um, Twitter was founded, uh, YouTube, Uber all of those, Uber, right. Social media was born during that time frame, and it was at this peak. Um, and the whole world has taken notice and begun to recruit talent to that region for about 15 years. Uh, but California has had a population decline for the past two years straight. Uh, San Francisco uh, to many locals uh, is unrecognizable. Um, and people are moving to seek different ways of, of living. And I think that the pandemic um, proved that you can work software jobs and start software companies from anywhere that has an internet connection. And I think we're at this really interesting time where new, the New Orleanian quality of life uh, is moving higher on the radar of talented professionals and entrepreneurs that aren't bound to a particular geography in order to build out their companies and their ideas. And so this is, I think, something we're gonna start to see more of um, in this decade. Uh, many of the investors that we partner with um, are not New Orleanian natives. They decided to come here for the quality of life from New York, from Chicago, from other places. And so this is something as a city, I think we should uh, continue uh, leaning into that our culture has global export. 
Um, this is, you know, the British Airways decided to have a direct flight here uh, instead of other places. And, and so um, we should recognize how the world views New Orleans and we should have that same uh, attitude when we look at our city. And Tony, I've got to ask you a question that I've been thinking about during the, during the show is you've got public libraries and universities as your clients, but you've got to go beyond teaching them about using software and, uh, you know, databases like Bloomberg and Nexus Lexus, because they in turn have to explain it to someone else. So, I mean, that is, that's got to be a real challenge. That's right. Uh, many of the skills on our platform are not technical or hard skills. There's an equal amount of soft skills. Um, things like public speaking, uh, things like um, instructional design or um, what they call information literacy uh, or training first time researchers or, or students to find the right information they need. Um, uh, so there's a, a host of, of skills that are required to meet the needs of the modern uh, library patron. Um, and as you say, much of it goes beyond knowing a certain product or technology. And it's just learning how to engage with, with diverse audiences wherever their learning curve, uh, wherever they are within the learning curve. Um, yeah, and, and you know, one more point with regards to the universities. Uh... I think there is a, I agree with Tony that look, the, the pandemic changed everything. And you know, we, I think we can all see that with the house prices and you know, all of those things around, around the city, right? So, uh, so certainly I think it's a much more desirable place to work. And I'm sure that there's far more companies or representation of companies here than that you know, any of us can imagine. Um, the other piece is that given that it is, you know, of course, smaller than the, some of the bigger markets, the companies here get first dibs on the, the talent that's coming out of, of Tulane and, and uh, Benridge, because let's say we were to start, or in California or New York, like we would be pretty low down the pecking order in terms of people that we could get, right? Versus here, you know, a smaller company can command a better talent pool. Um, so there's a bit of an advantage, but again, it's always a balance. You want a bigger talent pool, uh, but not so big that, you know, you're, you're lost in the, in, in the list of companies. Um, so it is a balance. I, I definitely think we're heading towards a pretty healthy part of the balance currently. So, Living in the information age, we're constantly bombarded with information. Although knowledge is power, there's a significant difference between knowledge and information. Knowledge is the foundation of our whole lives. Everything we decide or do is based on what we know. With regard, knowledge is truth. Information, on the other hand, well, it can be anything from true to wrong or even intentionally fraudulent. Tony and Vignesh, both of you are in the business of helping individuals, companies, organizations, and institutions find and share knowledge. It's impressive that the kind of specialized, sophisticated technology that you've developed is coming out of Louisiana. Thanks for helping put Baton Rouge and New Orleans on the worldwide technology map. And thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Tony Zanders, founder and CEO of SkillType, and Vignesh Kirshnan, CEO of Research Defender. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about 
Vignesh and Tony's groundbreaking software by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Rashidi. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. <laughs>